Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Last week, we uh, began a study of Paul's second missionary journey. And this is where maps are helpful. And so I want to show you a little map of kind of where we are here. Um, So the, the missionary journey begins after the end of the Council of Jerusalem. Paul made his way up through Antioch, which is kind of like his sending church. He made his way through modern-day Turkey, which um, is, uh, was Asia Minor in those days. And then he had what is famously called the Macedonian call. Some of you all have heard about that. We actually talked about that in our Finding Atlanta series. And he made his way across over into, into Macedonia, into Philippi. Last week, if you were here, we looked at what happened with Paul in Thessalonica, how he was almost killed, how the, the gospel so disrupted their way of life there in Thessalonica, uh, that the people basically chased Paul out of town. Uh, We didn't look at this last week, but after Thessalonica, Paul went to Berea, and uh, that's a really interesting church story. It says the people there happily received the word of God. They welcomed the good news of the gospel, but the people of Thessalonica were still so upset about the disruption that that Paul had caused in their town through the preaching of the gospel. They actually chased Paul from Thessalonica. They went down into Berea. And so Silas um, and Timothy had to get rid of Paul, right? He was causing too much trouble. So they put Paul on a boat and they send him down to Athens. So Paul's waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. This is where we pick up today. He's waiting for them to come. He's gone on a boat, which was faster. They're making their way, as you see, kind of through Greece, through the land, It's actually kind of rough terrain along the coast there, and uh, Paul is hanging out, waiting for his buddies. Now, this is where Paul and I are different. So this is me. I'm thinking, and I've just been in prison in Philippi. I was almost killed in Thessalonica, and now I'm here in Athens, and the food is amazing, and the arts are amazing, and there's the theater, and uh, there's all of these philosophers. I'm just going to take some downtime, right? I'm just going to enjoy the scenery. I'm just going to enjoy the architecture. What do we see? It says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw the idolatry in the city. When he saw that this this great city was far from God, he was provoked. And really, I just want to say, this whole series, this whole whole mission series, City to City, that we're in right now, this is my goal. This is our goal for this, is that we would be a church that is provoked. When you hear from Joe Sumrall, when you hear what God is doing all around the world, when you hear that people do not have the Bible in their original language, I, I pray that you would be provoked, that you would see there is a need, that you would see, that you would remember that in Christ you have the answer, that you would be provoked, that you'd be moved by the idolatry around you. You know, are, are you moved by the idol worship in Atlanta, that people are finding identity and meaning and purpose in something other than God? Are you moved that so many parts of our world don't have gospel access? Does this provoke you at all? And so Paul and his his engagement here in Athens is incredibly instructive for us. And there's a couple of things that I want to look at with you. Three things in particular. The first, first of all, the place of the gospel. Secondly, the delivery of the gospel. And then finally, the response of the gospel. Place, the delivery of and the response to, the, so the place of the gospel. Paul is provoked by the Spirit of God, and Paul goes to two places. This is interesting. It's instructive for us. 
with the gospel, Paul goes both to the synagogue and to the marketplace. He goes both to the people that were devoutly seeking God in his word. At that time, this is the Old Testament. And he goes to the marketplace, to people that would have never heard about this. And I think this is incredibly instructive uh, for Christ's covenant. Paul goes with the gospel to the synagogue. And when we gather as a church in our synagogue, if you will, in our modern place of worship, we gather around the gospel. We gather to understand God's word. We, we gather to understand God's grand story. Paul goes to the synagogue and he begins reasoning with people from the scripture, showing them that all of the scripture has been fulfilled in Christ. Now, this is also instructive. You know, keep in mind, this is a time when eyewitnesses of the resurrection were alive. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians gives that as one of his big proofs of the resurrection. Hey, go ask the eyewitnesses. But what is Paul's overarching proof of the resurrection? How does Paul always begin his case toward the resurrection? He always begins with the story of Scripture. He says, look, this is something that just happened in an isolated place. This is something that God has been doing. Paul, when he goes to the synagogue, is centering these people around God's word and around God's gospel, not claiming to be wise, but humbly desiring to hear from God. And that is something I so desperately desire for us as we gather, that it would be a transcendent moment for us, that that no one would be here because of any wisdom of any man or any skill of any man, but we would truly seek to hear from God and that God's word, that has been given to us by the Spirit of God would be instructive and correcting and encouraging for us. And that we would never forget the gospel. That we would center our lives on the gospel. You know, Martin Luther, kind of the famous reformer, he he preached a lot there at the town church in Wittenberg. And one day one of his parishioners famously was coming out of the service and they said to him, you know, Martin Luther, you always preach the gospel. Can't we move on, right? Can't we move past this? You're, you're always preaching the gospel. You're, you're always talking about Christ as the center of all things and, and how his death and resurrection is life, how it makes sense of all things for us. Can't we move on from these things, Martin Luther? Why do you preach the gospel every week? And Martin Luther said, I preach the gospel every week because you forget the gospel every week. And what I want to say to you and to me is, do you know how close you are every moment of your life to self-righteousness on one side and to self-justification on the other side? Without the gospel, you will will always slip over into self-righteousness where you would develop a spirit of pride because of your goodness and isolationism and lack of compassion lack of concern for the world, you will always slip off into the self-righteous Christianity that God hates, or you'll slip off into self-justification, where you'll end up justifying a worldly life, where your life will have no distinction from the rest of the world, just a nice maybe little worship bow that you put on it every Sunday morning. Without the gospel, you are so close, like all the time, you are so close to slipping off into one of those two areas. We need the gospel every week. We need the gospel every day. Without the gospel, you won't know how to use your money. Without the gospel, you'll either give your money and be so self-righteous in it and feel so good about yourself and look down on other people 
because you're generous and they're not. Or you'll spend all your money on yourself. You'll never be generous at all. You see, no, it's only the gospel. When you realize what God has given you freely in Christ, that you can be really generous, that you can rightly use the gifts and the resources that God has given you. Without the gospel, you know what you're going to be? I'm just going to say this to parents. I had some great conversations this week. You will be such a bad parent. If you're trying to be a Christian parent without the gospel, you'll be the worst. You know how many people I talk to? You know, you know like what so many of my counseling situations are? Are children of self-righteous gospel-less parents. And they have, and their and their view of God and their view of truth is so distorted now because of that. Or, but on the other side of parenting, you'll, you'll raise your kids to have no distinction and to, and to find their identity in work and in education and to follow the American dream, and they'll end up wasting their life on that side. You need the gospel every week, every day, or you will slip off into one of those two places. We need the gospel when we gather so that we can take it with us when we scatter. We need the gospel in the synagogue so that we can take it with us to the marketplace. And, and this is something we talk about a lot in here. There is this rhythm of Christianity of both gathering and scattering. When we gather, we are the church. When we scatter, we are the church. You are no less the church when you are scattered than you are when we are gathered. And if we really want to see the gospel go out into the marketplace, you know who the real heroes of Christianity should be? It's not the pastor. It's not the preacher. It's you guys. You're the ones that are in the marketplace. You're the ones that have actual skills that normal people care about. You're the ones that have actual contact with people in the marketplace. It's, it's you that God wants to use to change the world. You know what the Bible says about you? You are the temple. You know what the temple is? The temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. That's what God says about you in Christ. That's who you are all the time by the power of the Spirit. You know what the Bible says about you? You are the ambassadors. You are the ones that are representing the kingdom of God out in the marketplace. God says that you are the priests. You know what the priests, you know what priests do? Priests make an appeal to God on behalf of people. And I think I would just ask you that question. You know, who are you priesting? Uh, last week at our little ski trip, I think it was after I hurt my leg, which, just so y'all know, my leg is not as bad as we thought. So that's, yeah, that's a phrase, yeah. I don't have to have surgery, and I'm really, really happy about that. But anyway, um, I was talking to the, Students that were there, the students, the young adults, I'm sorry, the young adults that were there about, uh, about Abraham and his interaction with God in Genesis 18, where he's appealing to God for the sake of the, the people of Sodom, okay? So this is Abraham saying to God, please don't destroy Sodom, this wicked people. Abraham knew they were wicked, but he's priesting on their behalf. God have mercy on them. And one of the things that I asked, uh, you know, the people there, and I'll ask you, who are you priesting? Is there anyone that you're priesting for, that you're advocating to God for? Is there anyone that's even on your radar? Is there anyone that you're even praying for that God would come alive in their heart? Who are you priesting? Who are you advocating for? Where has God sent you and to whom has God sent you to be a priest? This is ministry in the marketplace, ministry in the neighborhood, ministry in the home in some cases. You know, one of the tools that we give you guys, I really hope y'all carry around with you, is these little table talk cards. 
and we just want you to write a couple of names on the back. And what I, I stick it in my wallet, and every time I get my wallet out to pay, I've memorized the chorus of the names on the back, and I'll just pray, Father, please, for the sake of this person, may your spirit come alive in their heart. For the sake of this person, may someone, maybe me, come to them with the gospel. Who are you priesting? Who are you even calling out to God for? We need the gospel in the synagogue. We need the gospel in the marketplace. But the second thing that we learn about, we've learned about the place of the gospel. The second point here, I think it's incredibly instructive. In this particular passage is the delivery of the gospel. Now, this is a famous passage that people have studied a lot, and, it, and it, there's good reason for it. It's, it's, it's very, very instructive for us. A lot of people have kind of a romantic view of the past, um, all these sweet old ignorant people, and maybe you imagine Paul kind of coming to town. I was watching, this is going to tell you a little bit something about me, but I was flipping the channels the other day, I was watching Music Man, the Music Man, the old musical, and you know Harold Hill goes to River City and sells the people a bunch of band instruments. And so maybe you know you kind of have the impression that these people in Athens were like, uh, you know, the people of River City, and very gullible, very simple, old-timey kind of folks. But of course, nowadays, the people that you're trying to talk to about Jesus, they're much more modern, they're much more sophisticated, they're much more educated. Well, this is not the case. These are sophisticated people. I mean, this is Athens. These are some of the most educated people. This, you know, on par with any modern city today. And there, we read that there was two groups of people that Paul was particularly trying to meet. And I think this is incredibly instructive to, uh, for us also. The first group was the Epicureans. The Epicureans were materialists. These were modern secular people. They didn't believe that God was, you know, had, had given the world any sort of meaning, that he was engaged in any sort of way with humanity. They were kind of deists, but not really. They were actually more materialistic. than They, they actually had a further separation from God than most deists would even have because they didn't believe that God had given any sort of like uh, non-material order to the world. So this is modern secularism. So that's one side. And then the other folks were Stoics. And the Stoics are kind of like the hyper uh, spiritual people, uh, kind of like modern day pantheists uh, a little bit where they, 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 they saw energy and spiritual movement and all kinds of things, but there wasn't a lot of definition to how they defined supernatural things or how they defined God. Uh, you know, kind of like what you would see with, you know, pantheists or something today. I, I remember I was in India one time and um, we were doing some missions work over there and I kept meeting these people that were going to uh, Rishikesh, which is this like famous yoga center. It's where the Beatles went. And so everybody wants to go there and do yoga. And I kept meeting these people. I remember one day I had this conversation with this girl and we were talking about life and meaning, and she would get frustrated when I'd ask her like actual questions, and she would just say, ah, it's just the isness of the is, right? And so that's, I thought like, she's a stoic, right? And, 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 and also I would say stoics, just to kind of as a little warning, doctrineless Christianity becomes stoicism pretty quickly. If, if Jesus is just like this nice energy and it makes you feel good, you know, to have a little Jesus around, that's stoicism. So it's people that are really unwilling to land on any sort of truth. This is, so you have the materialist, you have the modern secular people, if you will, on one side, 
You have the Stoics on the other side. And Paul goes out into the marketplace and begins to preach the gospel. And he, he gives a biblical narrative here. He gives a whole narrative here. He talks about God's plan. He talks about the resurrection. He talks about the word of God. And I'm sure he was citing the Old Testament. And so the people were confused. They'd never heard anything like this before. The ESV translated a babbler. But actually the more particular translation, the more accurate is seed speaker. Now that doesn't mean anything. So I'm glad the ESV people said babbler, but seed speaker meant he's taking one idea from this group, one idea from this group, one idea from this group. It was a, it was to liken um, like hens in a yard eating seed. You know, I'm taking this, I'm taking that. I have no cohesive thought. That's what the people thought of him. Now something amazing happens though to Paul here. He's actually asked to go before the Athenian council at the Areopagus. That's an incredibly hard word to say. So, But at the Areopagus. I've actually been to the Areopagus. You can still go there. It's still a place. It's this rock outcropping kind of underneath the Parthenon uh, right there in Athens. It's actually a really beautiful place to go. Um, in fact, every time I've been there, there's always been like a guy there with uh, a canvas and an easel and like a meat and cheese plate. And um, so... Pro tip, if you ever go to Athens, you know, get the canvas. Be the cool guy on the Areopagus. But anyway, back in these days, it was the place where the smartest people really in the world, certainly the smartest people in Athens, would go and discuss the ideas of the day. So they bring Paul, this seed speaker, to the Areopagus. And this is big. I mean, this is Mr. Smith goes to Washington. This is, you know, little Paul going, he's, you know, he's had an audience in these other little towns, but now he's going before the big dogs. And I, I really don't think, I mean, if you imagine like a modern day Areopagus, Areopagus, this is like Dawkins, this is like Noam Chomsky, Salman Rushdie, maybe a couple of journalists like Nick, Nicholas Kristof, Friedman, Spielberg would have been there, Condoleezza Rice, and let's throw in Bono. So like all of these amazing thinkers sitting around, and here's little Paul from Tarsus, right? This is like, be like a little kid from Alabama, you know, going to Oxford University with the world's greatest thinkers and saying, let me explain this gospel to you. And Paul's presentation here, his delivery of the gospel was truly masterful. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from. There's, there's three things here. The first thing that Paul does is he meets his audience with the questions that they are asking. He finds the questions that they're asking. Look at 22 and 23. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that you're religious, right? So you're asking religious questions. I passed along. I saw your objects of worship. I found this altar with the inscription to the unknown God, right? So there's some questions as to who is divine and what is divine and what is the meaning of these things. And then he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, I'm going to tell you what it is. You know, one of the books that we read um, a year ago or so, maybe a little bit more in our Tuesday night group was Making Sense of God. It's a really great book by Tim Keller. And he does, I think, in this book, what Paul is doing at the Areopagus. Um, so we, we, we live in a world, everyone in the world, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the secular people, the Christian people, the spiritual people, everyone is building a worldview, which means everyone is answering questions about the world. Everyone is saying, okay, I see this, I feel this, and, and I'm going to answer these questions. And so what Keller does in this book, he takes eight questions that everyone has. 
So, for example, meaning in life or hope or justice, right? Everybody desires some form of justice, but how do you decide what is just and unjust? Or morality. Everybody has some form of morality, but how do you know how to base your morality? How do you know what, where is your morality grounded or hope? How can you have any hope for the future? How do you ground your sense of hope? You know, and again, you know, like I said, just meaning in general. You take the most staunch atheist in the world. No one has given up on meaning, right? People can say I ascribe to the, um, you know, a, a philosophy of meaninglessness, but they believe that their particular life has meaning, right? No one thinks that, no one actually believes that things are truly meaningless. And so what, what Keller does in this book is he takes those questions and he questions the answers of a secular world. And I think it's really, really helpful. He, he begins by saying, let's take, let's take the way that secular people answer these foundational questions of life, and let's see if it really makes any sense. And the truth of the matter is, guys, you know, for these bigger questions, things like love, things like meaning, things like order, things like morals, secular people have bad answers at best to these things that are at the depths of our soul, at the depths of our understanding of this world. And so what he's really trying to do here, and I love this, he's trying to make skeptics out of secular people. You know, and I just want to say that, I just want to, as a little aside, I want a church that is so well equipped. You know, for a long time, like when Joe and I were in student ministry back at Willowbrook Baptist Church in Huntsville, Alabama, here's what people would say. They would say, we've got to equip our students so that when they go to college, and meet secular people, they'll be able to defend their faith, right? We've been saying that for a long time, okay? Well, the world that we live in now, guys, <laughs> that only assumes that you live in like a mostly Christian suburban kind of place where there's like a Christian ethos around you anyway, right? You know, take like Imriana, um, she's seven years old. I believe that God is already giving her a saving faith and praise God for that. But she, as a Christian in her little class, is already a minority as a Christian. Her faith, long before she goes to college, is going to be challenged. And so I've got to do as a parent, we've got to do as a church, such a good job of equipping our young people long before they get in high school. We've got to build for them a biblical and a spiritual worldview. And what I desire for my kids is not only that they would be firm in their Christian faith, but that they would be able to go out and create skeptics out of secular people. You know, my goal for the students and the children's ministry and the student ministry here is that, that secular people be saying, don't let your kids talk to those Christians from Christ's covenant. They will have your child questioning everything you've ever taught them. And so that's what, that's what uh, Keller does in this. He, he, he has, if you're a secular person, you read this, you'll be questioning everything that you thought was true, and then he fills it in uh, with gospel fruitfulness. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. By the way, would anybody like this book? Could this be useful to anyone? All right, Susan, DJ, why don't you take it back to her? Um, but um, that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He finds the questions that they're asking. He's saying, look, I know you're trying to create some meaning in here, and wouldn't it be great if the gospel was true, wouldn't it be great if God wasn't actually a mystery? Wouldn't it be great if God actually could come to you? He creates this tension in their heart by finding the question that they're asking. The second thing Paul does here is he gives them a satisfying narrative. 
He gives them a satisfying narrative. Now, I believe that this account that we have here in Acts 17 that Luke wrote down is abridged, right? I don't think Luke was recording everything that Paul said at the Areopagus that day. I think he's recording a satisfactory account of it, but I don't think it's a word-for-word -word account. I think Paul said a lot more than this. And what we see and what we have here is that Paul is giving them a biblical narrative. He's telling them the story of God. And again, this is why your Bibles are so important. It helps frame our minds around the narrative of God. Paul is saying it's God who created everything. It's God who gave everything order. It's God who gives life. It's God who gives meaning. It's all from him. It's all for him. It's all to him. This is God's story. And he begins to help these Athenians frame their minds, frame their hearts around the story of God. Every one of these people at the Areopagus that day would have read the Odyssey. Y'all remember reading the Odyssey in high school? Some of y'all that went to really good schools, you read the Iliad too. We didn't do that at Grissom. <laughs> uh, some of y'all that went to like really good schools, you would have also read the Aeneid. Everyone read Aeneid. Everyone would have known these Greek and Roman epic poems. And what, for example, like what the Aeneid is, is it's Virgil's attempt, he kind of rewrites the Odyssey in order to frame what life and humanity was all about. He was giving them a narrative. He was giving the Roman people a narrative through which they could understand their life and through which they could understand the whole world. And I want you to understand this. Everyone does this. Everyone understands their life through some narrative. Modern secular people understand their life through some narrative. The narrative, like a part of it might be, in the past we were oppressed by religiousness and small-mindedness, religiosity and small-mindedness, but now we're setting ourselves free from this to newer and better ideas. There is a global, there's a meta-narrative of modern secularism. There is a global narrative of feminism, right? Men used to run the world and they oppressed everyone. And now women are coming up and they will one day take over. Or at least there'll be no difference between gender. Environmentalists have a narrative. Republicans have a narrative. Democrats have a narrative. The sexual revolution has a narrative. I wish I had time to tease all of these things out for you. There's all of these narratives that are going on, and through these narratives, people are making sense of their lives. Most of us have been affected by this big, what I'll call a mega narrative, because it's so impactful, that's the American dream narrative. It says courage, meaning, happiness. It's found when you buy a house, when you have a family, when you have a successful career and get a good education and have a nice retirement someday. Now, we are so affected by that that just seems like normal life, right? We hear that, we're like, yeah, that's just life. No, 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 that is a story. We have bought a story. And we're like, these are the things that give us meaning. These are the things that give us value. Everyone understands their life through a narrative. It may not be the Odyssey. It may not be Aeneid. But we're all looking at our lives through some narrative lens. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, here is a satisfying story that you can find your identity in. Only it's the real story. Only it's the eternal story. Only it's the true story, the story that will last forever. It's God's story. So he finds the questions that they're, answering, that they're asking. 
He gives them a satisfying narrative. And finally, he presents the risen Jesus. Look at verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. This true story, the story of God that I've just told you, one day you will face him, but you can face him, Paul says. He's given us assurance to face him through the risen Jesus. There is forgiveness in the risen Jesus. Through the death of Christ, we can find forgiveness. Through the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, we can find new life. You can find meaning. You can find hope. You can meet God rightly through the risen Jesus. Paul is saying here, your days of guessing, your days of fumbling around, your days of, uh, the, the passage says, just stumbling your way toward God, trying to feel your way toward God. He said, these days have come to an end. Jesus has come to Athens and now you can know truth, and now you can know God. So don't miss this, Athenians. Don't miss this, Atlantans. Jesus has come to Athens. He's come to Atlanta too, and now you can know God, and now you can make sense of your life, and, and that's one of the things I love about Christianity is there's, there's such a satisfying and complete story that we find ourselves in, that we can find ourselves in through the risen Jesus. You know, I, I'm a part of a lot of weddings. I go to a lot of weddings. I do a lot of weddings. And I love weddings. But weddings can be kind of a strange day in your life because it's a day that you all look, you look forward to for so long, right? Any of y'all ever gotten married? You, you, you look forward to getting married. You think about it from the time you're a child. And then you get married and you're in the middle of like the wedding. You're like, oh my gosh, this is my wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I am getting married right now. I am in the moment. And, and, and you know, the weight of marriage is so heavy and just like the, the complexity of a wedding day is so big that it's easy to kind of miss your own wedding. You, you kind of like aren't there. You can't just enjoy the day. And so Paige and I, whenever we do marriage counseling, we say, just, just look, just enjoy the moment. Forget about what's going on. Just enjoy the things that are going on. And there's a sense where I think this is kind of what Paul is saying here. He's like, look, you guys, you're so smart. You're up here at the Areopagus. You've been trying to feel your way around. You've been trying to find truth for so long. But listen, now truth has actually come. And it's come, and his name is Jesus, and he's not far from you. In fact, the very one who created everything, the very one who will judge everything, he's right here. He's in Christ. He's in, we have assurance of this by the power of the resurrection, so don't miss this. Don't miss this. And he's not coming as he will one day as, as a great judge. No, he's, he's coming as a groom. He's coming as one who loves you and wants to save you and call you into this story and call you in to himself. And so don't miss this. We've looked at the place. We've looked at the delivery. But finally, and just really quick, I want to look at the response. Now, Again, there's three simple responses here. It's very obvious to see in the text. Very simply, some mocked, right? Some heard this and thought, resurrection, truth coming real, that makes no sense. That goes against everything I've ever heard. They mocked Paul. Some were intrigued. Some heard what Paul had to say and said, you know, we'll hear you again. 
We'll at least give you another hearing. This is at least interesting enough for us to hear you again. But the last part says this, but some believed, some believed. Paul goes to this Areopagus Hill, these people that had never heard, he presents the grand story of God and how we can know God in Christ and some believed. And you know what? Eventually a church started in Athens and the city and these people's souls were changed for all of eternity. You know, you know how the gospel got from Jerusalem to Athens? Because somebody went and was willing to share the gospel and some believed. And you know how the gospel got from Athens to Atlanta? Because somebody went and was willing to share the gospel and some believed. You are some of those, some that have believed. And I just want to encourage you who are Christians, let this encourage us that you can go to the strangest, harshest place. And by God's spirit, I believe some will believe. We can go with confidence. This was a difficult place for Paul to go, but some believed. And I want to just say this to you if you're here today and you're not a believer. You know, some of you might be listening in these three responses. They're probably happening now. You're probably thinking, this guy, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Some may mock. Some may be intrigued. Some of y'all are intrigued. And if you are intrigued, you're thinking, you know what? Maybe this has some sense to it. This is a good place to be. You know, and I just want to say this. This is a place where we want questions. We love questions. We have the text to pastor line. I love when y'all ask me questions. I love when y'all said that and it made no sense. Because here's the deal. I have blind spots. You know, I'm just a guy trying to understand who God is in Christ, just like you. And so let's ask questions. Let's, let's be honest enough to do that. And some of you right now, you believe and you know you believe. And even God in his word, as, as James was reading it, he was stirring in you. As I was preaching and he was stirring in you, that's evidence that you believe. And that you, you found yourself in this true story. You found yourself in this true life. And so I want to ask you to respond now by taking the Lord's Supper. One of the great things that God has done for his church is he's given us this, this drama, if you will, that we can participate with him. Jesus said uh, on the night that he was betrayed to his disciples, he took bread before them and he said, this is my body and it's going to be broken for you. And this is my blood, and it's going to be spilled for you. Why? Because I love you, and because I want you in, and because I've come to rescue you. And so here in a few moments, if you are a believer, I invite you to take this body, and to take this, this cup, to take this bread, and to take this wine as a representative of God's love toward you, of God's desire to bring you in. And look, if, I want to say this. If you're here today and you're a skeptic, if you're here today and you're not a believer, this meal is for believers. And so I just, just out of respect for other Christians here and out of respect for our faith, just refrain from taking it. That's okay. Nobody's going to look at you funny. Um, I'll be in the back. If you have any questions to ask, you can stay at your seat and pray. You can sing. Just do whatever you want. But uh, this meal is for those um, who know Christ, who believed who received this gospel and said, yes, it is true. And so I'm gonna ask you here in a few moments, if you'll just depart your row and you can come as you will, but depart your row from the right and make your way back up from the left. And we'll just do that all the way around um, the auditorium here. Uh, but let me pray for us. I'll invite you to come hold on to the elements. We'll take them corporately here just in a few moments. Father, I, 
I pray now that you'd give us believing faith, that we would be the some who believe, that we would hold fast to these things, that, that the gospel in our lives would shape us. Father, I, I, I repent right now um, from any self-righteousness or self-justification that I have fallen into this week, even today, but that I would just find my identity in Christ and in no one else. Uh, that I would believe, Father, that it is his righteousness that is my hope. It's his death, Lord, that is my forgiveness. It's his life, Lord, um, Father, that is now can be my life, that I can find truth and life in, in the risen Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would just give me this faith, that you would give all of us this faith. I pray this me would be a blessing to us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.